So welcome to Wireless Future Podcasts. So as usual, I'm here with Eric Larson. But the unusual thing is, first of all, that this is episode 37 and the first time we are at the same place. 37 at the same place. Amazing indeed, I mean. <laughs> so uh, the other unusual thing is that there are other people mm. at the same place. So we have a panel here with six people that I will introduce in a moment. And then there is also an audience listening to this. So let me hear the audience. <laughs> <laughs> so the panel here consists of Lisa van der Herr, that you have heard in previous episodes. And she is, for example, an expert on wireless Internet of Things, and she's from Q11. Then we have Philip Tudeson from Lund University, working particularly with channel modeling and channel measurements and so on. We have Jacob Poitis from NVIDIA. So working, for example, with, uh, uh, yeah, what are, what are you working on? <laughs> <laughs> I should read from a script here. <laughs> Anything related to, to machine learning. Yeah, so machine learning for communication and uh, software for that in particular. And then we have Dennis Gundus. Uh, also working with, with machine learning, but also yeah, semantic communications or some channel coding and these type of things. We have uh, Henk Wimersch, our sensing, localization and communication person. And finally, Lucas Aguinetti, a MIMO, holographic MIMO guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, since we have so many experts in the room, we wanted to take the opportunity to answer some of the questions that we have received from people listening to the podcast, we've asked around on social media, and things particularly that we might not be the best ones on answering ourselves. Ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so, so therefore, the, the questions will go around to the people here in the panel. So uh, we will start then with, with Lisbeth. And um, so Internet of Things is something that you hear a lot about. We've heard about that for, for a long time. And uh, yeah, it seems like the whole narrowband IoT thing isn't really something that has become a commercial success yet, or, or, or has it? Uh, so I think my question is, where do we stand with connectivity for IoT and yeah. what will happen soon? <laughs> Well, it's, uh, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think for narrowband IoT specifically, I think the good thing is it could be implemented more or less as a software upgrade in the network, which made that the rollout is fantastic. From that point of view, if you would check the world map and where you have narrowband IoT, that is that's really impressive. But it has, according to me, the specs have not been driven by application requirements or an economic uh, requirement, and so it's for a lot of IoT cases, it's both requiring too much energy of the devices and it's too much uh, money, it's too expensive. But what might happen, maybe can happen, is that if there comes what they typically call a killer application, and for example, think about the energy transition we have, the, the, the transition towards um, electric cars. If we want to couple cars with solar production and home batteries and all these kind of things, that might be a case where we need the data uh, and where narrowband IoT could be the exact solution that is fitting that kind of application, where it's not too expensive, it's not too energy hungry, and it can solve a puzzle I think that nobody has solved so far. So if there's some killer applications that fit with the specs of narrowband IoT, I think it, it could become a success. 
And on the other hand, I think IoT is happening in a lot of bottom-up uh, situations. Bluetooth low energy is there with longer range, LoRa networks are being deployed. So I think there's a lot of bottom-up things happening, but the top-down narrowband IoT, I think if there's this kind of application that can really benefit from it, and that has an economic value, and it's a killer app in the sense that if you don't load your car, the car is dead, then I think it could make a big success. Just for the benefit of well, myself and, and, and the audience, so narrowband IoT is something like 15 kilohertz wide of spectrum. Is that correct? No. Or how wide is and what bit rates can you get? And how, how is the coverage if you compare to like standard cellular coverage? The, the bandwidth is, is 180 kilohertz, so it's wider. Uh, yeah, the, the throughput depends on which kind of devices, but the coverage is even better than normal cellular. For example, it has a bit of strange skewed modulation techniques. So, for example, in underground garage, it's better than normal cellular coverage. So it's, it's everywhere normally where you have a cellular coverage and even better. So the robustness is a bit higher and, and the throughput is definitely maybe not for high-end cameras all the time, but, but for a lot of higher-end IoT applications, it's, it's even on the larger side. Mm. So you got the 100 and you said 80 kilohertz, yep. um, which means a couple of hundred kilobits per second order of magnitude mm -hmm. and coverage even larger than the standard yeah. cellular. So when you're on the train, um, for example, between well any major cities in Sweden and one of the major, um, let's say, problems if you try to talk on the phone it, is that the coverage is spotty at best, but the narrowband IoT would still be available. So, so. Yeah, but don't, don't count on the few hundred kilobits yeah. per second, because it's very low spectrum mm -hmm. efficiency. Yeah, but it should be better. One of the main unfortunate things is that, for example, roaming is not well supported yet. So. For people working in logistics, that could be very interested in uh, using narrowband IoT. The roaming is not mm. as we have with other standards. So mm. saying, I put it in a container and I will know where my container is. Logistically, from a number of non-technical parts, mm. it's, it's still very complicated. Mm. So that's also, I think, a couple of things to be resolved. Mm. So are there some other use cases you believe will be coming in the future? I, mean... I think that the logistics is, is mm. one of those use cases there's a lot of even full containers getting lost right and and so i think in logistics we see lots of potential use cases um they're solving a number of these roaming issues and so on i think is important mm. hmm. yeah that sounds exciting so one thing with this narrowband iot i think is the question as to how much of uh, power supply that you will need at the device side uh, so there is uh, a vision here that we could build like small devices that either live on a battery that lasts for a very long time, like I don't know, a year or two years or five years or ten years even, I heard being discussed. Uh, so there's a vision we build these devices either lying on a, on a battery that basically never uh, dies um, to the, uh, well, uh, point that these devices would harvest powered from somewhere, be that solar maybe, or uh, from vibrations, or even from the RF uh, itself. So maybe Elizabeth, you could comment on like how you see the evolution in the future of uh, devices that 
don't rely on an external power source or, or don't rely on a battery that needs to be actively charged by somebody actually plugging it in or be replaced during the lifetime of the device. Yeah, I think also there, there's been some oversimplifications in some papers claiming what narrowband yeah. can do on, on, on one uh, battery because they, they forget a lot of things that are important like the cell discharge and so on. I think if you can afford a solar panel and there is some sun around now and then, then it's amazing what you can do. Mm. If you don't have that, uh, then you're very limited. If you need to live from, from vibrations, unless you're on a train or on, on the wheel of a car, then you have lots of vibrations, it can work, but otherwise it's, it's, it's very inefficient. RF power is very inefficient unless you use large and, uh, arrays, and it's a few meters you can do. But if not, it's very inefficient in terms of 0.0 whatever percent. I think another solution that we are investigating now and exploring, and it's fun to do, is whether you can fly in a drone to recharge things on the spot. Mm -hmm. And then you can do something which is actually much more efficient than, than what you do with radio uh, waves, to be honest. Yeah, it seems like this could be one of the really annoying things with the IoT, that if you, we will have many more IoT devices in the future than we have humans, and then they have batteries that run out all the time, well, just going around and changing this battery will be sort of killing the whole thing. Yeah, but also, I mean, if you're on board a vehicle, like you said, like a car or a train, then there will be a power supply. Yeah? So the real question, I think, is if you mount these devices out somewhere in the in the field or an agricultural field or, or crop field somewhere or in the forest or maybe on board some animal could carry, like every cow could carry its own narrowband IoT device signaling constantly how much milk uh, is uh, ready to be uh, um, uh, well, uh, I would say uh, to be to be could be. Um, I lost the word. <laughs> Get from the cow, <laughs> or how hungry is the cow? Um, then uh, this becomes a real issue, and then maybe a small solar panel. But of course, then you would need a battery that you charge, and that would be depleted at night and so forth. So. Um, what are really like, or, or what is your vision here, Lisbeth, in terms of all these technologies? If it would look like maybe 10 years down the road, or I don't know, 20 years, will we see every cow um, out in, uh, uh, a great saying, the, 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 um, out there with a narrowband IoT on it and, and, and a small sensor with narrowband IoT next to every like uh, carrot or potato uh, <laughs> crop or what, where do you think the, I mean, the scaling of this is heading and where will it stop? I think we may see a lot of things, but probably not with narrowband IoT. I oh. think there are other, yeah, and for example, if you think about crops, we're working on something which is uh, a center for tomato plants yeah. and greenhouses. <clears throat> we now put there Bluetooth, low energy and, and LoRa, but we think we will be able to do everything in Bluetooth. Yeah. So and, and then you don't need to go to a cellular network. You can solve things much more locally. Mm. I think this this open bottom-up networks and, and the fact that you can do this without I'm sorry for the for the operators, without the whole big network, but solve the thing locally, I think there's a lot of great fun things to do. Even just building multi-hub networks between sensors, you mm. can get a long way in, in woods and so on mm. without necessarily needing uh, to go to something which is a bit heavy, I think, for mm. the extreme explosion of devices, I think narrowband IoT is a bit over overkill. Mm -hmm. 
for free range chickens, maybe. Yeah, for free range <laughs> chickens, yeah. <laughs> so maybe we, we just need to separate the issues here, right? So one question is what in our event IoT is and what it could be used for. The other question is like uh, building energy, small passive devices that rely on harvesting or solar or vibrations or, or, or even RF or something else and how they could communicate and interact. Uh, these are really like two separate maybe questions because um, for the cows out in the field or the cattle plant, you wouldn't need this 180 kilohertz even. You would just need <laughs> one bit to tell it's time to tap the, the, the milk and one bit to tell that the, the, the cow or the chicken is hungry. And that would go along with a lot, lot less maybe of frequency and spectrum. So, good. Okay. Uh, so is there uh, anyone else in the panel heading, who have yeah. any <laughs> input on the IoT discussion? <laughs> or should we move on to... Yeah, maybe some better questions. Some better questions. <laughs> yes. Uh, so where do we go next, Emil? I was planning to to ask Frederick a little bit uh, since uh, yeah, you have been working, looking into different kinds of frequency spectrum, for example. So one of the things we talk a lot about when it comes to city networks is the sub terahertz band. So so what is the sub terahertz band? I mean, sub-terahertz, typically we refer to things above 100 gigahertz, uh, even though, strictly speaking, it's starting a little bit further up. But uh, say it's 100 gigahertz and above. And there we really have the other extreme compared to uh, narrowband IoT. I mean, here we are going extremely broadband. That is why we want to be there, because there is one of the few places where we really can get the bandwidth that we need when we have requirements for extreme data rates. So, there, I mean, it's not sending one bit a day or one bit an hour. It's about, I mean, how do we, do we get terabits per second throughput? Right. So, and the fact that we are not calling it millimeter waves, is it because we are expecting them to behave rather differently than millimeter wave systems? Yeah, I mean, millimeter wave and subterahertz, they are, they are neighbors. They are, so they have similarities. I, I would say that the big difference comes when you go, I mean, 30, gigahertz and upwards, but then it becomes more and more pronounced the higher you go. And uh, to an extreme, I mean, compare it to uh, to light. I mean, extreme high uh, upper terahertz. And take a torch, uh, whatever you're, uh, where you're pointing a torch, there is where you have a signal. And uh, that is, I mean, we're getting closer and closer to that when we go up in frequency. Mm. Right, and uh, then, at some point, radio frequencies start to bounce up and go around corners and things like this. So, so where did these effects really become important? Yeah, I mean, so that effect we have somewhere, I mean, below 7, 15, uh, below 30, we can say. I mean, then you can start to have diffraction around corners so that we can go around <coughs> corners. Otherwise, we have to rely on bounces and scattering. And uh, so that is the two main propagation uh, phenomena that we can use to get some coverage and to get the link, non-minus height links at all. So from some kind of channel uh, modeling perspective, is there something new we should know about these subterrace bands? One important thing is that since we need to have a large aperture still at the antenna side, which means that at those frequencies, since the wavelength is so short, it means that we need to have many, many antenna elements there. And when we have many antenna elements, we have directivity in our antenna. So we cannot have this omnidirectional coverage anymore. Uh, we can still have, I mean, 
decent coverage, but in certain directions. So we need to be able to find out where should we aim our antenna and where is the user moving so that we can track the user movement with our beamforming antenna. Yeah, so basically you're saying that we need to build up aperture in order to maintain the length budget, but once you build up aperture, then you also get direct penalty. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. That is the case. So uh, we need to maintain the aperture in order to yeah. capture enough signal. Otherwise, we don't have enough yeah. signal so that we can establish a good and reliable link. And aperture here means the size of the array or how do we define an aperture? Yes, it's the physical size of the array. And then we put in our antenna elements in that physical size that we have available. Yes, you also mentioned that is there some sort of like cutoff point at you said I think 30 gigahertz beyond which you so beyond 30 gigahertz then the propagation starts to behave more like rays of light and like thinking of a flashlight you just point around you don't see a lot of diffraction around corners and and that that really happens at 30 gigahertz was that did I get that right Frederick? More or less. I mean, there is no strict line there yeah. that uh, yeah. this, but I mean, it's happening there 20, 30 gigahertz somewhere. Yes. Yeah, so 20, 30 gigahertz. Right. So, um, uh, so then a question I think here is um, uh, concerning modeling of the propagation. I mean, for visible light, we can rather well rely on ray tracing. And in fact, with ray tracing, we can generate photorealistic uh, images of pretty much any like environment today with, with uh, the tools that we have available from computer graphics and so on. Um, so when you work on modeling, and I know you work on modeling channels for basically your entire career, um, when we model terahertz channels, will we be able to rely on ray tracing tools similar to like what we do for um, just pictures with visual light, or do we still need like um, stochastic models or like fading distributions and that sort of things? Could you maybe shed some light on that? I would say it's, I mean, those ray tracing tools, they are very good in predicting what can we see and what can we not see. Yeah. So predicting shadowing, for example, that's okay, are we blocked or are we not blocked? <clears throat> Uh, the problem is when going up in frequency, especially, I mean, at those frequencies, then we need also a resolution of the environment description in the order of millimeter or centimeters to do something reliable uh, when it comes to the fine details of the channel. So, so when you say fine details and what scale are we talking here? Like, I mean, I understand that the table, for example, here is tabletop is like flat and it's probably air quotes optically flat at terahertz, so that it behaves like you're reflecting, well, I mean, the wavelength table has to be like large enough, right? But you basically reflect the incoming wave. But if we take this another extreme, uh, Jacob's sweater, that's kind of softish, then, and we illuminate, yeah. <laughs> we illuminate Jacob here with the terahertz. Would that be like, you need to know what quality of the wool in his sweater in order to properly model that ray tracing? Or on what level of detail do you need to know the materials here, Frederick? Yeah, so there we are also, I mean, when we go up in frequency, go down in wavelength, I mean, a sweater, it's a difference if we look at the sweater at uh, 120 gigahertz or if we look at it at uh, 900 megahertz. Yeah. Because 
I mean, we don't, with the 900 megahertz, we don't see the details, and uh, maybe it's Jacob that is acting as a good reflector or scattering object. But when we go up to 120, uh, maybe this weather is uh, absorbing everything, so we actually don't see Jacob anymore, because there is no reflection from there, because this weather is acting mm. like a good absorber mm. at those frequencies. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I've been wondering a bit about this, because you see, if you want to go into the game of uh, yeah, channel measurement, this type of thing. It seems to be less easy or harder and harder to sort of be relevant there. You need more antennas, you need a expensive equipment to generate subterranean signals and so on. Uh, so, so that's why, I'm, oh, maybe the easiest thing would be just be to buy a better computer and run the, the ray tracer. So, so do you think we can sort of do a lot of propagation studies and things with ray tracing? I think we can do a lot of studies with ray tracing, and, and we are actually doing it already today. But to do large-scale uh, <clears throat> simulations and to get exact answers, I think we can have a, quite a good idea what coverage can we expect. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, really, when going up in frequency, then we, we need a very detailed description of the environment, and that is typically not available today. Even if I scan it myself with the leader, uh, it's super hard mm. to make a good model out of this leader scan to put into my ray tracer. Mm. But still, for some certain points, I can mm. do it. Yeah, so we're basically returning to the point that you need to know the material in more detail and not just its visual appearance in order to model how the interference wave uh, uh, is uh, reflected or, or absorbed or, or not. Uh, great. So, I don't know, how are we doing yes. time? <laughs> so, is there anyone else who have some experience of working with terahertz? Or everyone is doing it just with the math? That's a simple <laughs> way of dealing with things. Right? So, uh, when we were talking now about uh, ray tracing, so I know that uh, Jacob have been, you have been implementing your own ray tracing software recently. How come? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I did it. Um, so things I, <clears throat> I, I have spent the last years working on machine learning for communications, and I felt that the real benefit of machine learning in our field will actually materialize once you let a system or model specialize to a particular environment. And that means you need to model a room or a part of a city as it is, and meaning you can't rely on channel models to represent this particular environment. And the only way we have available to actually generate channel impulse responses for a particular environment is ray tracing. We can, of course, do some measurements, but if you want to do simulation-based work, we need ray tracing. And um, since I um, work for a company that has a lot of experience in ray tracing for computer rendering, I thought, why not look into what they have been doing in the last 30 years as incredible uh, advances there and see if you can leverage this actually also for much lower frequencies. Uh, yeah, and that's why I <laughs> learned ray tracing from scratch. I'm still learning. Uh, and yeah. It, and it seems like it, it, that there were differentiable ray tracing, something that is happening there. So, so what can we differentiate in the ray tracing? Yeah, so essentially, ray tracing is just, you know, you implement a set of equations which are all differential. And now a differential ray tracer computes essentially um, gradients for you in an automated manner. That means, for example, you can ask a question, if I change the conductivity of one object a tiny bit, what will be the impact of my channel impulse response? Mm -hmm. And now essentially your 
we can think about differential ray tracing as transforming a scene into a, yeah, a large system with many parameters, a bit like a neural network. And then you can start doing gradient descent on the trainable parameters of your scene to do something. And one of the things which I currently am interested in is, is precisely um, solving the problem of how do you get actually um, parameters of your environment. Meaning, as, as, as Frederick said, it's already challenging to get geometry, right? But I think that can be solved to some extent. So you have, it's fail, fairly easy to get a mesh, a 3D mesh representation of the scene. Mm -hmm. It might look ugly, but you can get it. But the other ingredient you need for ray tracing is now, okay, all of these objects, what, what is it? What is the material? It looks like concrete, but maybe it's something else. And now with differential ray tracing, you can do measurement and calibrate essentially your entire scene so that it matches your measurements. So you can learn the things that you actually can't see. Right, so if we put you in an anechoic chamber, we can figure out what the material properties are. Yeah, I'm sure you could characterize Jakob and 3 gigahertz. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's one thing which is um, there's a caveat. So typically ray tracing, what ray tracing algorithms would like to have simple models because we need to look for specular paths. And we need to construct paths that goes from one point to precisely another point. And if your scene is too complex, meaning you have you know, very rough meshes, um, the algorithms to find these specular paths all will fail. And so we can't rely on this anymore. And I think so now for terrorists, maybe this is actually an advantage because specular reflection will be less prominent and we might rely more and more on diffuse scattering. For diffuse scattering, you don't need to find exact paths, but you can rather connect essentially any reflecting point to a receiver. And that's then much more similar to what's done in computer graphics. And then we can leverage the full pile of rendering algorithms actually in our field. So maybe it can be far more efficient for terahertz and for lower frequencies. Right. Yeah, question? Oh, oh well, uh, I mean, so it, it feels slightly like contradictory that you could actually differentiate a ray tracing model because if you think about it, you could be just right at the edge here. So I see that chair over the seat over there, I see the seat blocking it, and then I move just an epsilon to the right, and then one of the reflected rays will be totally blocked, which um, corresponds to something like a step function. Right? If you think of your signals and systems terminology, and we know that this is differentiable. So um, how accurate, now I didn't have the chance, unfortunately, to come to your talk this afternoon, but how, maybe you gave the answer there, but how sensitive, I mean, are your models to that sort of phenomena? Yeah, very good question. I think one needs to differentiate between um, differentiability with respect to called scene yeah. parameters and actually the geometry. And scene parameters, that's easy, but computing gradients with respect to geometry yeah. is yeah. a much more difficult yeah. beast. Yeah. Some people do it in computer rendering. It's possible, yeah. but you need to come up with heuristics for gradients and so on. It doesn't work so well. Um, so I, I don't think we are at a point yet where this works in our field. Yeah. But with respect to um, losing suddenly pass, I mean, we still have diffraction to some extent. And though it, you still get a feel, it's never you lose something suddenly. But, no. um, this, yeah. Yeah, sure. So that's reassuring to know, I think. Um, so what do you think are these models going to be used for eventually? Now, suppose that we had a fully differentiable channel model based on ray tracing. What would you use that for? Uh, what is your vision here? 
Yeah, so we, my, the big vision is, to some extent, I would like to take randomness out of communications. And um, the way you can do this is by predicting things, right? Because that is actually not randomness in communication. You just move around, you will know what the channel will look like. But it's not random. If I could perfectly predict it, there would be no randomness anymore. And I could build infinitely reliable systems to some extent. And so um, one way of making communication system more predictable is by having better models to predict what's happening. So if you could construct essentially a real-time digital twin that would allow you to compute propagation conditions, you could probably do things much better. And the other thing is, I would like to use these models. If I have a very good digital twin, I could now start looking into what would a machine learning model actually optimize in such scenario? Can I do better? Can I do better because I can now overfit to this specific environment? And um, mm -hmm. you know, to answer these questions, if they actually benefit in doing this, you need mm -hmm. such a tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can certainly see there will be benefit. I mean, but how would you actually track how the environment evolves? Even you take, I mean, let's say you have this room here and I've got people like slightly moving around uh, with their uh, heads, which I think is a good sign because you guys seem you're all awake. But <laughs> let's say I took one of my, I took my, I take my pen here and I move it a little bit. Now, retrain. I mean, you need uh, like a uh, either we have to be under constant surveillance in order to gather enough data for your ray tracing algorithm to compute its different uh, derivatives, uh, uh, or, or you would need some sort of feedback mechanism, I suppose, from the actual terahertz link that tells the model that uh, hey, stop, something has changed here. Uh, how would this actually work? Yeah. So. Um that's still a bit far-fetched, but um, there are neural radiance fields, so-called NERFs. Essentially, yeah. you, you take a few pictures, you would install a few cameras somewhere, yeah. and they allow you actually to, 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 to essentially create in real time a 3D model of your environment. Right. And you could essentially film this, and you trace in real time with 60 frames per second, and you update your 3D model <coughs> in real time. So I think that's possible. And now, if your ray tracing algorithm is fast enough, and I think we're getting yeah. there, because for computer graphics you can do real-time yeah. ray tracing, um, you would be able to actually yeah. solve in real time, you could update coverage yeah. maps in real time, even if your uh, real-world changes. Yeah. So I, well, we are not there yet, but yeah. I think that no. might be Wow, that's a cool vision, yeah, amazing, okay. So, uh, since you have been working a lot with machine learning for communication, one of the things you, you are known for is some kind of end-to-end -end learning or auto-encoder. So, uh, do you think we, in the future, will replace some of our wireless protocols with learned protocols? Yeah, I think actually Dennis is much more optimistic than myself. Right, so, <laughs> so we will soon go so the thing is, I, I kind of, um, um, I kind of reached, I think I've pushed this field as far as I could, where, and I haven't discovered anything so far that cannot be learned. So you can even learn new waveforms that outperform what we do. But the thing is, the gains are not really large. And it's not just because you can do something, it's what you should do. And now, pragmatically speaking, if you want to convince anyone in 3GPP that this is the way to go, it will, <coughs> it will be very, very difficult. So what I think, a pragmatic thing, I hope is happening, is that we would see more and more machine learning um, enhanced algorithms, but that are standard agnostic, meaning you have some um, machine learning models, for example, in a 5G receiver. And that's already, that's already a very, very difficult thing to do. And that's one of the things I'm also looking into, actually proving that you can do 
example, neural network-based signal processing in real time, you know, running on a 100 megahertz channel. Um, even if the performance is worse slightly than what we do, I just want to kind of show it can be done. And I think the first step, so to think even further into end-to-end learning or something like this, people must realize you can actually do it. And once neural networks are there and become mainstream, then maybe we can think about hey, maybe you can learn things end-to-end, -end, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's going to happen in the 6G time frame. So there's still research opportunities for 7G, I guess. So should we hear another? <laughs> Not that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I agree with the fact that I don't think this is going to happen very soon. I think the, the standardization, of course, is a, I mean, it's a great thing, of course, as we know, but it's also a block kind of to transform things very, you know, uh, kind of fundamentally. So in that sense, it's going to take time. But uh, I mean, and what Jakob was also saying, I mean, I agree with the fact that you can, you can do everything pretty much better. And I think some, some gains in some applications in some domains is significant. I think it's a matter of, you know, like when these will be, there will be real need for that. And I think, uh, so right now, the communication networks are mainly serving, you know, us mainly for content delivery. I think for those, we are we're maybe good enough. But as we move towards, you know, like new applications, you know, as you know, many people talk about more maybe AI-oriented applications that might have different type of latency requirements and, you know, uh, rate requirements, then maybe we can actually, we will have more needs for new type of uh, algorithms. So, Luca, you have worked on this? As well, a bit or <laughs> yeah, just a bit. I was using the demo of Jacob for right. students, and actually, I was surprised by what you can do with the end to end learning scheme. What was very fun, actually. <laughs> but actually, when I was trying to use the, this, uh, I mean, this platform, I was, I mean, the students were, were also able to attack the network very quickly and let the receiver provide an output which was very much different from the what expected. So this is that's why I was also wondering if this kind of system may be more vulnerable to attacks mm. and and try to push the neural network to give you a dog all the time when instead that the feature is a cat very easily. Can I can I respond to that? <laughs> Have you students tried to no. Attack a normal system? Yeah. Because I think it's as easy as yeah. on a physical layer, you just jam something. Yeah, but it's the same. You just, just, you just get nothing. Probably you, you don't get a, the image. The problem is that if you can attack the receiver in a way that instead of getting a dog, you, st you always get a cat. So that's the point. I mean, a normal system can give you nothing, an image that doesn't make any sense. Maybe the neural network can be tricked in a way that is, is, instead of delivering the cat, is going to deliver the dog. I don't know if this is the case, but... So, yeah, I think you raised one point, and I have no good answer to that, and that's it's, you know, and typically you have CLC checks that tell you you have correctly received um, a packet. And now if we go towards this, um, say, more generative uh, kind of type of communications that maybe Dennis will speak about, where you know, it's not about, get, you can't really say you have correctly received the to a bit precision what you should have. Then, then, then you run into these issues. And if you, if you have no mechanism anymore to tell you zero bit errors, next packet, um, then you're kind of stuck. And also, I don't know how to deal with encryption. Or maybe you have, you know, some, some type of encryption going on and this would all go away. And um, yeah, but I have no 
answer and things to, things to be done. So uh, talking about AI, so a lot of people talking about that, and it seems particularly in the 6G context, people are saying that 6G will be the first AI-native uh, technology. So, so what does that even mean to be AI-native? Okay, so I mean, I, I personally never used the term, but I've, I've definitely seen it used a lot. So I think it's one of the, since it's not a mathematical definition, it's hard to you know like, say exactly what it is. Maybe everybody means a little bit different. Uh, but I think basically it, it covers everything that somehow, you know, how we can incorporate AI into the, you know, uh, <clears throat> definition or the design of the next generation network. So somehow, and this, this, this involves, of course, you know, what we were just talking about using AI to design, you know, new algorithms, maybe, you know, encoder, decoder, waveforms, etc. But also, I think maybe in the more short term, enabling things like uh, to allow the networks, for example, just to collect data, right? So this, this may not even be for the sake of optimizing the network itself, but maybe it's for other kind of uh, purposes you want to do for machine learning, for anything, for IoT, IoT type of de devices, collect a lot of data, and that data has to be somehow efficiently collected, stored, processed across different types of networks, different type of vendors. So all these things should be somehow uh, part of the design. So I think that's what, you know, what's meant that uh, the next generation networks will, should be both allow you know, for us to use them for AI training or inference, and hopefully also should you know, use AI to, to improve their performance. Mm. Yeah, so I, I think I saw a talk somewhere where somebody suggested to use a chat GPT style, I mean, general AI in the context of wireless networks. I'm not quite sure I understood exactly how this is supposed to work, but I mean, one application case I could think of is that you got your system, you got all your access points and it deployed, you got your whatever uh, switches and, and, and cabling and all of this. Now you just talk to the system and say, hey, uh, make sure to provide coverage right now here and, 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 and there and especially there and, and make sure to provide low latency and make sure to provide this ultra reliability and, and, and so on and the system just does it for you. Uh, is that like the vision with this native or AI native or is there something else here that I've been missing? Okay, so I think, I mean, obviously, if we, if we can just ask the network to give whatever kind of performance KPIs we have and it provides, I think that would be great. But I don't think that has much to do with the uh, GPT. <laughs> no. I don't see. So basically, whether we say it in English, <laughs> the network, and I think that would be the, the minor part of it. So, you know, whether that's capable of doing it or not. Yeah, but I did speak to some folks in the industry who suggested that actually to configure all these systems, right? Because these mobile networks are enormously big systems with lots of components that we maybe don't all of us think about on a like daily. Like, I mean, we get the base stations and the towers and all of this, right? But then we got the whole core network and switches and uh, operation centers that need to be configured with configuration files that are just unmanagedly, uh, unmanagedly large. And um, even here, just being able to talk to the system rather than sitting and, and, and fiddling with, with parameters and, and tweaking the, the operation could be, I mean, let's not forget that aspect, right? I mean, we talked about this end-to-end -end thing where you could replace your turbo code with Jacob's learned algorithm, uh, but maybe at, at higher levels, there would be even more opportunity to actually leverage general AI to, to configure and run the systems. I mean, I... 
I agree the fact that you know that the system is very complicated and it would be nice to simplify with optimization but I think the challenge there I don't know how much of the challenge at least you know the part that to really you know yeah. control it by let's say speaking in English rather than going and you know optimizing some parameters I think right now given the state of you know this uh, large language models I think that's probably solved right so that right now we have tools to convert what you say what you want into parameters but now the challenge is still there how do we really optimize those in real time? So that I think that is some that's a point where other AI tools, not necessarily you know chat GPT type of tools, they might be uh, very useful. So I mean, uh, chat GPT, chat GPT, as you know, is, is kind of uh, this next word predictor at, at, in essence, right? So I don't see how it directly you know like impacts. Of course, you know for anyone familiar with you know information theory, you can you can directly see that it's a it's a tool to compress for, mm. for compression right so if you because basically it gives you a very good model of your uh, information source so if you want to compress for example text in english so now thanks to ChatGPT, we have a very good probabilistic model so we can design a code that's optimized for this model so that will definitely that can help us for let's say text compression that's that's kind of obvious but uh but i think there's something more so the core elements of this type of uh, tools is the transformer architecture. So that's a new kind of, I mean, now, in, not the new maybe so much in the machine learning uh, sense, but uh, that architecture, I think, has potentials for, uh, you know, to be used in various uh, wireless network applications. So we have actually done things like designing codes for channel estimation, you know, CSI feedback, things like that. So for many things that people have used other machine learning tools and got, you know, very good performance, I think you know pretty much always you can get better performance using you know, transformer architecture. So is it this improvement uh, big enough? So it's sort of uh, worth start to looking into actually using these things. I mean, I think that's that's of course you know like you know, question. I don't know how big it should be for for let's say you know to, to have a commercial application. Uh, and again, as I said, I think it, it will really depend on you know what type of applications, what type of requirements you have. But I mean, my, Jacob said also that I'm uh, more optimistic. I think in the future, somehow, you know, these tools will be used for, for maybe not in this very standardized mobile or communicate mobile network kind of things. But think of it like this. I mean, now we are talking about all these kind of chat GPT agents and, you know, like these are somehow getting smarter. Now, if we allow them, for example, to communicate with each other, so how are they going to communicate? Do you think that they're going to use stand our standardized <coughs> mobile networks? Uh, <laughs> exactly. So I think, you know, like we should maybe now think about that. Uh, how would actually, if you allow some intelligent agents to establish some communication, you know, uh, among themselves, so what, what, it's, what would it look like? So is this related to what people call semantic communications? Uh, I guess so. In a sense, you know, again, uh, these are you know, very general terms that everybody might mean something else. <laughs> Uh, I think semantic communication in general, uh, from my perspective, means that when you transmit something, when you communicate something, you want to communicate the information that is the most re relevant for the receiver, for whatever the receiver wants to do. So uh, a good example would be, for example, if I want to send you an image, uh, you might be interested in reconstructing the, the, this image with highest fidelity in terms of maybe the pixels you want to be as close to original as possible. Or you might just be happy to have a sketch of the image, maybe there's just one person in it, you know, a house, 
or you might just be, you know, you might be happy with the textual description. So I think this semantic communication is kind of a communication system that can deliver any of such uh, requirements. Right, so, so, so maybe the simplest version of that is how emojis look different to different platforms, but it's still supposed to be yeah. the same thing. Yeah, you can say that. <laughs> so is there anyone else who have any input on our AI discussion? A short one. Just a very short comment about what I think about AI native right now. So I, I, I think um, for me it means to actually enable from a standardization point of view the use of machine learning in future networks because it's not really working in 5G. So nobody has access to data, um, especially on the physical layer. I mean, that's why nobody in the world actually shows real demos because nobody has access to data. So in the NF native means you build the system, you, enable, you make it technological enablers in terms of message exchanges and so on that allow you to implement machine learning solutions, which you couldn't right now at the moment. And so that, that, that demystifies it a bit for me. Maybe I think some researchers have some, some more aspiring ideas, but I think from a pragmatic point of view, that's what's missing. And I think once this reach can be study items, and I try exactly to do this, to think about what do we actually need to do so that machine learning can be implemented. Is that a little bit taking uh, edge computing to the next level? I mean, it, it was discussed a lot a couple of years ago. I mean, we should have edge cloud, and we should put uh, compute resources there. And how are those... Uh, ideas different from what we thought five years ago? Yeah. I don't know if I'm a good answer, but I think what's definitely happening is that everyone wants to bring the power of large language models to the user device. And so either we put these models in the edge, uh, but then you're still the communication bottleneck where I actually think what's happening is that soon your smartphone and all devices will run them locally. And you see this already. There's so many companies trying to embed this. I wouldn't be surprised if some of the big uh, telephone manufacturers will soon have um, the dedicated LLM accelerators in there. So um, maybe, the, but I think there's still these large models, might be multi-modal models and so on, that should run on the edge. To at least give you the feeling that intelligence is as close to you as possible. Can you just make that? Philosophical, I mean, thinking here. So, if I see what 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 they have done in the machine learning community, there is one one thing which is very common. So, they have common data sets which are used to devise algorithms and the, to do comparisons, and they've they've been very successful just because of this. In our community, we want to have a native AA, I mean, network. So we are not used to share data. We are not used to compare performance according to the same data. So in my life, I've never had the chance to uh, get access to data measurements or whatsoever. So do you think this is very much needed to make process in, in this direction? Or we can just, everyone using this data, is um, models or whatever, and then we come up with solutions which are not very much yeah, making any pro progress. <laughs> I think this is missing in our community. Yeah, so, so the thing is, I think it's, I don't think that what's missing. I think what's missing is a critical mass of people who work on the same problem. Like, you know, thousands of researchers working on image classification. What we have, we have thousands of researchers working on thousands of problems. <laughs> because we have so many problems, right? And everybody does something. And I think we have never agreed upon this is this one important problem that we want to solve. And now, Let's try to solve this all under the same assumptions and you know fight it out. <clears throat> Who wins? So that's I think what's missing.
Yeah, but will we even need uh, data sets and measurements once we get your ray tracing tool, Jacob? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, I, I think it's still it's needed, would be needed, real data can't be replaced. But I, but I think um, we have also great discussion in your podcast about reproducible research and so on. And so one of the reasons why I'm also very much engaged in open source um, tools and sharing and all those results is to have reproducibility and enable actually also this type of comparison. So, yeah, my feeling is the data is kind of needed. Yes, data is only always needed, but in order to make sense of the data, that is the problem. I mean, give me a hard drive and I will fill your hard drive in a minute with, the, with data, but it will take you a year to interpret what's there. And there we have the bottleneck. It's not the data itself, it's really, I mean, when we do measurement and we do, I mean, look at the data and at the transmissions we have in our cellular networks. I mean, it's huge amounts. So in order to grasp what is really there, that I think is the key bottleneck. Yeah, yeah, but my point is that if we don't have this common playground, we're just each of us each of us gonna play with his models, his data, whatever, so we are not making any progress in the direction that Jacob was mentioning. So we're just working each of us on different problems, different models, and then this this is very much different from what the machine learning community has done for years and has been very successful in this. Right, so with that, let's move on to the next problem. And uh, yes, let's ask some question to you, Hank. So when I was recently uh, in discussion about setting up some, some big collaborations in Sweden and talking about wireless. I was told, don't say wireless communication, wireless is much more than that. And of course, we have also the, the localization sensing parts, which traditionally have been a number of different technologies that are not really integrated together. So uh, for, if we compare this type of things, why are we using different systems? Do they really need different solutions? So if you think about um, wireless communication, how it's different from wireless positioning, I think there's a change happening, but let me talk about that later. So if you think about your second favorite equation, your first favorite would be probably uh, well, 1 plus SNR. Your second favorite equation is the y is hx plus n, right? And then the difference is how we look at this equation, how I feel. <clears> so, Communication, you care about x and the h is just in the way. And in localization, we care about h and the x is in the way. And that means typically we use pilots to estimate x, to estimate h. And then in communication, you care about this matrix h. You don't really care what's inside. Well, for localization, sensing, we care about the geometric information within this channel, the angles and the delays. Another way how localization is different from communication is uh, we care about geometry, that means also we need several base stations to be localized. While for communication, you need only one base station to communicate. And I think originally these were two different fields, right? So in localization, you have GPS, you have ultra wideband, several other systems. But this is now converging, mainly due to the shift in 5G from FR1 to millimeter wave, where all of a sudden a lot of spectrum opened up, new signals were defined, a lot of progress there. And so now it, is, it will be one system that can do everything, maybe not for all applications. So are we traditionally using different frequencies for this, or is it just how we do the physical layer? So the, the, 
the convection positioning systems use different frequencies, but for this ultra-wide, which is a very large bandwidth, but the underlying channel model, let's say, is the same. It's just a multi-path model where we try to extract the line of sight from the localizer itself. So it, from a positioning perspective, when you move from ultra-wide under GPS to 4G, 5G, nothing really changes. It's a different waveform, slightly change, slight changes in processing, but otherwise it's really the same. Right. And uh, did, now when we uh, started to use a lot of antennas in wireless communications, are antenna arrays also used in positioning, for example? To some extent, in the Bluetooth positioning, but you really see, again, in the move to millimeter wave and also a massive MIMO, that you have really a large number of antennas with a large aperture, which allows you to get a very fine angle of arrival, angle of departure information. And this really augments the positioning system and also provides additional ways of getting resolution, so ways of, of resolving multipath, even though when you, for instance, have limited bandwidth, but you have a lot of antennas, you can resolve the multipath and extract this precious line of sight that you care about. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we had uh, large arrays much earlier for uh, positioning and uh, angle estimation within radar, for example, based arrays many decades ago. Uh, so is my understanding correct that the new thing here is the integration of sensing and communications? And if so, what does the integration actually consist of? Is it to use the same signals for both purposes or is it to use the same piece of hardware or, or both? Or maybe you could uh, educate us a little bit on, on, on that. Yeah, so I think if you ask five different people what is integration, integrated sensing communication, you will get 10 different answers. So my own view is that this integration can manifest itself in many ways. The integration could even be that you put cameras next to the base station and that the information from the camera could inform the base station about how to improve communication. It could be that you reuse the same spectrum, sometimes for communication, sometimes for positioning or sensing using separate devices. It could be that you use the same device with the same spectrum, sometimes for communication, sometimes for sensing. It could mean that you use the same waveform, sometimes for positioning, sometimes for sensing. And it could also be that in the extreme case, that you do this concurrent transmissions for communication sensing. But that's really just one extreme case of this broad spectrum of integration of communication and sensing. Yeah, because I mean, speaking of using the same signals, isn't that quite natural? I mean, because uh, both for communication and for uh, sensing or particular uh, positioning particularly, you want the wide bandwidth. If you think about it, time arrival estimation, you want a signal with a peaky autocorrelation, which means that it will have a flat spectrum in the frequency domain. Huh? So that's like equal or is frequency content everywhere. Just like a signal designed for communication says. Um, so isn't this like well known all along that uh, you want to use signals that resemble white noise more or less both for communications and for uh, for positioning and then maybe also for sensing? Right, so I slightly disagree. I, I agree that we want large bandwidth, but maybe we want to use the bandwidth in a different way. Yeah. Um, there's different aspects to this. It's for instance, the, the rate at which you do positioning and sensing is different to the rate at which you do communication. You don't need to communicate. You don't need to position devices every 10 microseconds. Mm. Secondly, in terms of the spectrum, uh, I would argue for positioning, we don't want actually flat spectrum. We want some kind of power allocation that gives more power to the boundaries of the spectrum. That's actually much better for positioning. Yeah, that's actually true. I mean, technically, if you look at the camera bound for time of arrival estimation, then it will be, I think, inversely proportional to 
the effective bandwidth of the signal. So there is an advantage in putting more power towards the end of the spectrum. And that advantage will not be there for communications. So I obviously have to give you right on that. Uh, but I think the question still persists or remains. I mean, um, where is the like main, or the, 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 where is the novelty here really? Is that in, the, the, in integrating the sensing communication? Is it that you plan that you want to reuse the same piece of hardware for both purposes, or is it more, or is it something else? I'm not sure how to answer that question. I think yeah. it's the drive comes, I think, in the first instance for, for improving the communication system itself, right? So you want to spend some resources, time, frequency, or spatial, to the sensing or position that can improve the communication. And then in addition, if you have this regime with large bandwidth and large antennas, you could probably enable certain external systems, external services and applications that require very high precision, mm. high integrity, or, or extreme coverage. Mm. Mm. So, so the impression that I have is that send people working with building sensing systems are not very impressed with the idea about merging these type of things. But I think from the other direction, so if sensing systems are today are mostly maybe phased array based, and then uh, having a digital array for that is really high tech military things, then in wireless communications using digital arrays, everyone have that in, now in their 5G phone already. So, so building upon that and having that all over the place should at least be an add-on that can be used for from that direction. Yes, and I think this is just one of the many um, examples, right? A lot of the technologies that we're developing for communication have potentially never been thought about in positioning and sensing. There's the introduction of RISC, mm -hmm. the use of AI we talked about. There's this this really MIMO where we could have face coherent transmissions and carrier face positioning. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of opportunities, I think, for improving positioning and sensing towards 6G. I think the key aspect is that, I mean, we envision that uh, the infrastructure will be there and it's there for free, basically. So we can use this infrastructure uh, for other purposes than just communication. And th this is a key aspect, I think, when it comes to positioning. We don't have radar systems everywhere that is accessible, but uh, we do have communication systems now. So when you speak of integrated communication and sensing, you really mean that, well, now we got all this hardware, it's already there, with all these MIMO arrays with all this digital processing and contents, and then they can communicate, they can form beams and all of that. So why not just also use them for um, positioning applications or sensing applications? When the, the hardware is already there, the waveforms partly um, uh, as well. Yeah, super. Okay, so maybe that, that, that might be a signal that we should move uh, on. <laughs> yeah, I think we should uh, we talk a little bit about here. MIMO as well. MIMO. We have, have Luca here. Of course, Luca. <laughs> <laughs> so it, you have been working with the holographic MIMO recently. So, so what does holographic MIMO really mean? Okay, so as I said all the time, I mean, the, the, I think it's just a marketing <laughs> term uh, which but, we have been using for uh, for I mean, whatever it is beyond massive MIMO. But in, in general, the idea is that the lesson learned with massive MIMO is that the more antennas we have, the better, which was kind of known, but massive MIMO was like reinforcing the, the statement. So. This holographic MIMO thing is basically 
within this trend, the idea is to have more antennas. You, you can deploy more antennas in, in space. I mean, in a, for example, in this room, or you can even go for larger space like the campus, and then you have distributed MIMO, or like here, the extremely large antenna ray aperture. The holographic MIMO thing is that if you give me some space, which is, let's say, constrained, not so large, what, what I can do? I mean, can I do better than just placing antennas in land over two and then exploring more the degrees of freedom, the mm. channel? This is more or less the mm. question that we're trying to answer. And uh, yeah, it's not clear if there is any advantage in if we go for classical implementation, but there, are, <clears throat> there is probably space for different internet technology space, for example, metamaterials, metasurfaces, they may, they may enable the, the, they may enable us to better exploit the electromagnetic channel given the aperture that we have. Okay, so you have a given aperture, you have antennas inside of it, they, uh, there is some spacing in between, and you add more antennas. That's the classical way to densify the, 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 the array. Otherwise, you can also think about these metamaterials, and then you have your digital signal processing <clears throat> behind the, the, the metasurface that is going to first process the electromagnetic channel in a way that's convenient for the digital processing unit. This has an advantage, probably not in terms of performance, but in terms of complexity, power consumption, which is one of the limiting factors when you want to go up with the number of frequency, <clears throat> sorry, number of antennas, which means number of radio frequency chains. So we need to come up with different implementations which are equally good, but have lower complexity, lower power consumption, and can be implementable in a portable way. <clears throat> Yeah, so uh, returning to, to the talk you gave here earlier in the afternoon, Lucas, as if I understood well, one of the conclusions was that if you want to cover like an aperture with antennas, then lambda half spacing is kind of the optimal, all things considered. And then I was wondering, isn't this already well known? I mean, isn't there a something like a theorem in electromagnetics stating something to the effect that you got a source and no matter what the source looks like, it could be like an array or something. I mean, it shouldn't be like anything that uh, exploits super directivity, but it's a bunch of antennas or anything that radiates. You got a source, and then you enclose this source with a sphere, and then you look at the, the field in spherical coordinates, you expand the field strength in spherical coordinates, and you look at the eigenvalues. Then they will like be kind of like constant like this almost, and then suddenly they fall off like a cliff. And that fall off at the cliff happens, when the number of eigenvalues is uh, proportional to the surface area of the sphere divided by something like lambda squared, uh, um, which effectively implies that by placing antennas on the sphere with, with a wavelength or half a wavelength spacing captures all the information that the field has in it. Uh, could you comment on how that relates to like your conclusions from your uh, uh, talk earlier today? Yeah, th this is true actually, and uh, if the aperture is very large, and then this is even more true because I mean, this, what, what you're seeing is uh, is like the sampling theorem yeah. that we have in. Uh, the, yeah, yeah. Is, uh, I mean, so, so well, I promised you I'd give you a hard time before we started for <laughs> the, the recording. Uh, but, but to me, this is like a sampling theorem, right? So you got to, in, in the time domain analog, it would be you have an arabic signal with a bandwidth of V, we all know that you sample with an Iquist frequency twice the bandwidth, you capture all the information that's in the samples. And if you have white noise within this bandwidth, then you'll get uncorrelated 
statistically uncorrelated noise samples. If you sample faster, you will not capture more information. You get more samples of the noise, but those noise samples become correlated. And so it's like same thing with the aperture. You, you, you fill your aperture with lambda half spacing of antennas. If you put the antennas closer, you're just going to get correlated measurements. You get no more information. So my counterpoint to like your talk here was that I obviously agree with everything you said, but I would maintain, isn't this already well known? Okay, as I said, this is true as long as you have a large aperture break. I totally agree with you. Like the sampling theory, this is true if you have a large time interval. <clears throat> if, the, if the signal is short, the sampling, yeah. the sampling theory doesn't, doesn't, doesn't hold. Because the bandwidth is not finite. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, so <laughs> we yeah, the aperture has to be large enough for everybody's arguments exactly. to be valid. Just like for sampling a signal, we need large enough time window, right? I mean, the we, BT we product has to be large enough for the sampling theorem to deliver uh, and a reconstruction with, 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 a, with, a, uh, with, with a small uh, error. Um, I mean, in communication system, we often are doing over sampling also in the time domain for various reasons, I guess, too. Yeah, but... <laughs> the, but by the way, the conclusion of my talk is aligned with, with this observation. So if you have a short array, I mean, the aperture is uh, not as small compared to the wavelength, mm. then having uh, closely spaced antennas can give you some benefit. But if you have something which is large compared mm. to the wavelength, yeah. which is precisely what yeah. we have in the sample theory, yeah. then land over two is kind of optimal. Yeah. Mm. No, no, I mean, just to be clear on that point, I think we fundamentally both obviously agree here on, on the fact that, that, that the aperture has to be large enough for this to, uh, our, our argument to be exactly. valid. So, um, I don't know, Emil. Yeah, should we take the last or you want to say something? No, I think we, well, we, we should take the last question. Start, well, I think there's a dinner waiting for us. Otherwise, we could keep on talking forever here, I think, about apertures and antenna spacing. Yeah. But I think one thing that uh, related to, to, to Big MIMO or, uh, is the radiative near field that people are talking a lot about uh, these days, at least people who still want to do MIMO research. So what is your view of that? Is this something that we, people are analyzing as basic research for curiosity reasons or will it be somehow important in the future? So, so just to your question, so you're, when you say radiative near field, um, this is not really an array effect, right? I mean, the question would be like equally valid if you have just a single, whatever, dipole or something. Uh, we're looking at answers so that the context is clear here to everybody what near field means. Situations where you see spherical wavefronts, right? Exactly. So I think this will naturally appear if we go up to frequency, meaning the frequency distance, if you go up to 100 gigahertz or even more, it's going to be tens of meters, and then for sure, if you're below, then the, the, the wavefront will be spherical. And what we have done so far in the context of line side communications is to assume as a channel model that we have a plane weight, which is, of course, not correct, mm. operate below the frequency distance. So I think this will naturally come. Yeah, I just feel like we have to be very careful here when we speak of the near field, whether we mean the, uh, well, uh, reactive near field of an antenna or, or the, yeah, the you want to say something? Yes, I mean, we, we have to differ between those two. I mean, typically radiated near field, then you typically refer to, I mean, the magnetic fields around an antenna that we are typically not using 
except when we are charging uh, the wireless uh, power yeah. transfer, then we are using that. But when we talk about the rays and spherical waves, and, and that is nothing new. I mean, we experienced that in, uh, in Massive Mindmall already uh, when we had our large arrays. And if you calculate the, I mean, what is the distance where you have a plane wave? If you have a long linear array with 128 mm. elements, I mean, it's uh, a kilometer away mm. uh, at some frequencies. So it's, uh, I mean, it's already there today, uh, those uh, sp mm. spherical near field effects. Mm. Yeah, if I can. Yeah, and I mean, those have been there all along, as Frederick said. Uh, so now we're speaking of the, being in the geometric near field or not of the array. And I think I, I remember uh, you and me gave a, uh, I think, tutorial talk. Was it 2012 or 2011, 12, maybe 13? Uh, it's like 10 years ago. Wow. And you had this uh, uh, chart with uh, measurements you had done with this linear antenna array. It was like 10 meters long, I think. And you show how these uh, spherical uh, wave fronts uh, yeah. Well, the impact of, of the fact that the, the wave fronts are, are spherical, and uh, which obviously has to be taken into account. Maybe okay. Yeah, I want to comment. So, if we operate the digital domain, does it make any difference to have a spherical planar? So, we, yeah. I mean, in any yeah. massive line of communication system, mm. the channel is spherical because you estimate the channel. Mm. Yeah, no, no, but that's such an important point. I think it deserves to be reinforced one more time. That as long as we operate in, in, in time division duplexing, relying on uplink pilots for, for channel estimation, then it simply doesn't matter whether we're in the geometric far field or geometric near field. Uh, we, we, all, we all rely on estimated channel responses for the pre-coding, for the beam forming, and then this yeah, just becomes a moot point. The big problem is that when you rely on a model, so for example, if you if you rely on the plane weight, then even if you have a digital or analog implementation, you can still use the plane wave model to point your beam. But if you operate in the near field, I mean, the phase array is no longer to be equally good as, as the digital implementation because the channel is like that, and then you need to change the implementation of the, of the, mm. of the system. Right, and I think what we have noticed now in this last conversation is also the difficulty with terminology here because people have been studying these kind of effects uh, all along, as long as there have been wireless uh, been research as well, and we have been using different terms for the same kind of things, or roughly the same things here in the panel as well. So I think with that we should up here and thank everyone who has been in the panel, everyone who has been staying with us here and listening in the room. So, yeah, thank you very much.